This is They Create Worlds, episode 148, The Mysteries of a Magic. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. You know, we didn't do what we normally do last time. Last time we just sort of ended with, hey, we're looking at future us. We're all dead. Only the people of the future are hearing us. But we didn't say what we were going to talk about, which was really, really naughty of us. To be fair, not even Alex knew at the time what we were going to talk about. I was getting ready to move halfway across the country at the time, so what was going to be on the next episode of They Create Worlds after the three that we were recording in that time frame just wasn't the prime priority in my head at that exact moment. You are moved. You are now in the mystical lands of Atlanta. That's right. I remain shackled to the horrors of St. Louis. Very true. But we are still They Create Worlds, and we are still putting out episodes twice a month, even if we're 500 miles away instead of seven minutes away from each other. To be fair, we've been doing remote recording for quite a long time, a couple of years by this point. Doing the move doesn't really matter as long as the internet works. It's all good. Exactly. You have Charter, I have Comcast. What could possibly go wrong? The two most hated ISPs in the country. Hmm. Well, that means this year's live stream is going to be more entertaining than normal. <laughs> could be, could be. But we're not doing the live stream yet. We still hope to do that sometime at the very end of the year here at this point. But today we are talking about Imagic. I thought about it when you talked to me about Imagic earlier, and I looked it up and I went, wait. There was a third Atari third-party publisher. Haven't we talked about Atari enough and all of its various tentacles of interaction? How did we miss this company? I wouldn't say we missed it. It's one of those topics that there isn't as much to say as some other topics. It's an interesting company, but it was a very short-lived company. It was founded in 1981. It was gone by 1985. Its period of relevance was really only two years, 1982 to 1983. So really just a flash-in-the-pan company. That's how it ended up being. It came along at just the wrong time, or rather, it came along at just the right time to have a meteoric rise, but then have an incredibly steep fall. But it's still an interesting company. It was still a company that released some very popular games on the Atari and Mattel systems of the day that are still fondly remembered. It's a company that was created by some of the cream of the crop at Atari, not just on the programming side, as Activision was, but also on the executive side. Because on the executive side, Activision, of course, was Jim Levy and people Jim Levy hired. They were outside the business. A magic was Atari and Mattel, people on both the programming slash creative side and on the executive side. So it was a very interesting company. 
that had a whole lot of potential, but that potential was cut short by the crash. So it's not as sexy a topic as Atari or Nintendo or Sega or Activision or Electronic Arts. Probably not even as sexy as a Sierra or a Broderboon from the uh, computer game side of things. But we've done well over 100 of these things. We have to keep finding topics. It's definitely a company worth spending an episode on. And this one really will be one episode. Even if Alex decides that he is going to talk about a magic way too much, he can't stretch this one into two. <laughs> a good one to welcome us back. I know we've technically never left, but we've done a few kind of lighter episodes, not our normal deep dives, as I was doing this big transition. Now that that's over, it's, it's time to get our hands dirty again on the nuts and bolts of that old video game industry. We are certainly going to be dealing with nuts and bolts if we're dealing with Atari, because that's all that the Atari 2600 was held together with was nuts and bolts. (laughs) Sure. You said it was programmers from Atari who went and founded this company. So I take it this is part of the crop that went, you know, I want to have credit for my games. I don't like how Atari does things. I know enough to make a game on this thing. I'm just going to found my own company. With credits and video games. Yeah, sort of. Though it is a little bit more complicated than that. The two people that began this process, well, let me back up even from there. There were really two groups of two people that were looking at doing their own thing in the industry and ended up finding each other and joining together to create this giant supergroup of people. As I said, we're not only from Atari, but also from Mattel. On the Atari side, it really all starts with a programmer by the name of Dennis Coble. Dennis was one of the very first programmers hired into the coin-op division of Atari once they moved to microprocessor work in the mid-1970s. Before about 1976, everything they were doing at Atari was TTL hardware, so the game designers were electrical engineers. They were actually engineering the games and circuits. Once they transitioned to starting to use microprocessors in some of their games, of course, they had to start hiring programmers. Dennis Coble was the fourth programmer hired into Atari. He was a UC Berkeley guy, as so many of the early Atari people were, because, of course, that's fairly local <laughs> to where all the Atari stuff and All the Silicon Valley stuff is happening. He had degrees in both electrical engineering and computer science. He was good on the hardware side and on the software side, though he was brought in as a programmer. He had been working at a defense contractor called Applied Technology before joining Atari. He was kind of poached from there by a friend. I I don't know who the friend is. I'm not even sure he remembers who it was. But a friend that said, hey, we're doing this cool stuff at Atari. You should come join us. And he was like, okay. And so he did. He was the programmer on Sprint 2, 1976 game that was a massive, massive hit. It was the first driving game that Atari did with a microprocessor. It kind of updated their previous Grand Track 10 game to be uh, in the microprocessor world, so with much smoother animation and gameplay and and more features on the screen, etc., etc. That was a massive hit. He did a couple of other games that aren't quite nearly so notable. He was the programmer on Dominoes, which was Atari's take on Blockade, which we talked about in the context of Gremlin, the prototype of the snake game that became so big on phones. He also was the programmer on Avalanche, which you may recall from our Activision Games episode 
was the Atari arcade game that was the inspiration for the massive hit Kaboom, though Kaboom plays very, very differently from Avalanche because of the differences in the hardware, but that's the inspiration. He also uh, moonlighted helping out in the pinball division because Atari was in pinball in this time period, and their machines were solid state, so they required programmers as well. Then after that, in 1978, he was kind of sidelined into the handheld game division. We may recall that this is right in the period where handheld games were huge. This is the year that Simon came out, for instance. So Atari saw that, and, and they very briefly got into handhelds as well, but they were that's one area they were late in getting into, and so their handheld division was never too successful. But he spent a little time in the handheld division and was the programmer on the handheld version of Touch Me. Touch Me is the coin-op game that inspired Simon. And then after Simon became a hit, Atari took Touch Me and turned it into a handheld that was very much like Simon, more like Simon than the original Touch Me coin-op was. Steve Bristow, this is a tangent, but that's what we do here. I mean, this is They Create Worlds. If you're expecting there to be no tangents, then you're new. Welcome. It's time for a tangent. Bristow, anyway, Steve Bristow, who is in charge of all this, tells the story about when they released Touch Me, Milton Bradley, because the game was so like Simon, sent a very angry cease and desist letter threatening to sue, and Bristow says that he then just sent back to them a flyer of the original Touch Me arcade game. They never heard from Milton Bradley's lawyers again. We're going to sue you for imitating our game. Yeah, about that. You can sue me, and then I'll just pull this out and go, I'm going to sue you for stealing our game and profiting for millions. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, that was kind of a non-starter on the legal front. Everyone just kind of <laughs> let everyone live and let be on that one. I can only imagine Mattel getting that thing back and going, oh... I want to be a little fly in that boardroom when they got that letter back and they had to tell them, yeah, we can't sue them because they will counter sue us and they have a much stronger case. Yeah, that wouldn't have been a good time for Milton Bradley. I mean, Simon wasn't a, a pure ripoff. I mean, Ralph Baer did make changes to it that, quite frankly, made it a better game. But still, there's no doubt that the press buttons to pattern match with sounds thing was done by Atari before it was done by Ralph Baer. <laughs> so, yeah, that happened. And then after that, though, they pretty much shut the handheld game division down pretty quickly because the VCS was starting to do better. And, uh, of course, handheld were starting to collapse because that ended up being a fad, like all of these electronic entertainments do. So it just so happened at that time, the head of the VCS programming group, George Simcock, the engineer who was in charge of all the people programming games on the Atari VCS system, was retiring. He was an older engineer, much older than most of the uh, technical people at Atari. So Kobel actually ended up, at the beginning of 1980, taking that group over. So he was a manager. He did a little, I think, programming here and there, but he was mostly just managing the people that were making the games at this point. He didn't like it. I mean, I think he was okay with it when he took the job, but of course, 1980 is the year that Space Invaders released, and suddenly the entire company gets ginormous. He really didn't like being a middle manager in that environment, and this had nothing to do with salary or royalties or name recognition or any of that. This wasn't like the Activision people who were disillusioned because they weren't receiving credit, because at this point, Koble was a manager. I mean, obviously, he did not receive credit when he did his arcade games like Sprint 2, but at this point, he's a manager. He's not necessarily looking to 
pay off the limelight in that way or to earn more money in that way. It's just becoming a big company, and there are more VPs being layered on top of VPs. He didn't really like the job. Being the head of programming at Atari was basically having to be the person that babysits the programmers and stop them from going too nuts while also doing everything in your power to keep the marketing people away from the programmers enough that they can just do their jobs. It's kind of a thankless role, and it's a role that had a lot of turnover in the early 1980s at the company. So it's really not surprising that Dennis Koble would be kind of unhappy with that. He wasn't looking to leave the company right away. What he was really hoping to do was start a new subsidiary with Atari, where he could just focus on making fun, interesting, experimental, whatever, games that interested him, and then would hopefully interest some other people too. No layers of bureaucracy, no having to deal with marketing plans and timetables and all of this kind of stuff that you have to do when you're trying to get all the big games out for the VCS, so the VCS continues to be profitable. Just do kind of a small subsidiary. As he was kind of mulling over his future and trying to figure out what that might look like, he decided to get some advice from an ex-Atari employee named Bill Grubb. We've brought up Grubb a little bit in the past because he was at Atari, and we've talked about Atari at ad nauseum. But Grubb was a marketing and product development guy through and through. Now, when I say product development, I don't mean that he was the guy making the product. I mean, he was a marketer. That was his role. He had worked at Black & Decker for 16 years in Baltimore. At Black & Decker, he was very involved not just in marketing, but in shaping the product. I mean, marketing and product development worked kind of hand-in-hand at Black & Decker, which is really how it works at most sane companies. This is another tangent, but uh, Atari would have probably been far better served if there had been more coordination between marketing and the programmers, not less, which we've talked about before as well. He was kind of versed in both sides of things. He knew the retailers very well. So he was recruited to come to Atari. He was actually first recruited in 1978, but He turned them down at that time. And then in 1979, when Don Kingsborough decided that he didn't want to stay in the sales and marketing role at Atari anymore, they uh, went to him again and they brought him back in. So he joined in mid-1979 and then stayed until uh, the end of 1980. He was there about 18 months, 16 or 18 months, I think. He wasn't there long, but he was there during a crucial period. Because when he got there, as we may recall, this was the period when they just had the very rough 78, where they had lots of backstock on the shelves. Don Kingsborough had managed to move a lot of that backstock in the first part of the year. He was uh, very good, as we've said before, at doing anything and everything, promising anything a retailer wants to hear to get them to take the product, which could be a good quality and a bad quality, depending on the situation. But at least in this case, it did mean he was moving out the product, which was good. When Bill Grupp came in, he was a more corporate, kind of more steady, stable presence, and one that had just fabulous connections in the retail world, which is something that Don Kingsborough did not have at that time. I mean, he certainly would later by the time he founded Worlds of Wonder, but not quite so much at this time, I think it's fair to say. 
at this point, at least according to Grubb, whom I have interviewed, Atari was basically still deriving 50% of its revenue entirely from Sears in the consumer business. You know, they had gone in with Sears beginning with Home Pong in 1975, and they were still the biggest customer. Atari had a kind of diversification problem, if you will, in terms of its retail. Bill Grubb was the guy that sorted that out. Bill Grubb is the guy that got them bigger presence in places like Penny's and Kmart and all of these other important stores at the time and really helped balance that out. And of course, then Space Invaders came along and, and the system basically started selling itself. Grubb was a very important guy at the company, but as I believe we discussed in one of our 10 million Atari episodes, he really didn't like working for Ray Kassar. We've talked about how Kassar was as a manager and how that worked for some people and how it didn't work for other people. For Bill Grubb, it definitely did not work. So he left the company. He decided that he would get into the rep business. We've talked about sales reps before, too. Basically, uh, back in those days, none of the video game companies had their own internal sales force that did sales all over the country. They might have some of the big national accounts in-house. Everything else, they would give over to manufacturers' reps. And these rep companies would represent a lot of different companies, but they would generally only represent one company in any given field. Atari's rep in New England would not be selling any other video games, but they also might be marketing a stereo or a shampoo or whatever else that they might be marketing. And then these reps would have sales territories. Then they would push the product on behalf of the manufacturer for a commission on the sale. So at the time, Atari did not have a rep in Hawaii. Bill Grubb first said, hey, why don't you guys give me Hawaii? Because that sounded fun. Atari was like, no, we're not going to do that, but we could offer you something else. And then he was like, eh, whatever. So instead, he ended up becoming the rep company on the West Coast, not Hawaii, but he became the rep for Activision on the West Coast. Grubb saw firsthand how the third-party publisher was transforming the console industry. Because he wasn't just reading about Activision's success in the newspaper or in the trades. He was a part of that success because of the wonderful commissions he was getting on Activision product. When Dennis Coble came to ask him for advice on what he should do, Grubb was kind of itching to get back into the product side of things anyway, rather than the rep side, he basically said, you know what? Let's go into business. Let's do this. You're a good technical guy, but not only that, you were the head of the programming group at Atari, so you know the other good technical guys too. You can get some of your best people to show up and do the same thing, release high-quality third-party software for that product. Cobal was like, yeah, sure, let's do that. Effectively, he saw this big pie that was being nibbled away at by Activision and goes, you know, I know enough insider stuff and I know about enough about this industry and how to be a third party that I can make my own attempt at getting at that big juicy pie. There's no way that Atari can hold on to that huge of a market share if we come out with a compelling enough product. Exactly. And of course, since he was head of sales and marketing at Atari, he knows all the retail buyers. He knows that world very well. He's well-connected in retail, which means that they shouldn't have too much difficulty getting their product into retailers all over the country. 
Yeah, they basically decide that they're going to do that. And then, as luck would have it, Bill Grubb is down in L.A. with his wife. They're down there to see a show around their anniversary, which is on uh, April the 4th, their wedding anniversary. A guy that he knows at Mattel named Jim Goldberger asks to come and talk to him while they're in town. So they have a meeting on April 4th, 1981. And the reason that Bill Grubb still to this day remembers the exact date is because they had this meeting on his anniversary. That makes it easy to remember. Jim Goldberger, who was a marketing executive at Mattel Electronics, and his roommate, Brian Doherty, who was an engineer at Mattel Electronics, come and meet Bill Grubb at a little restaurant in L.A., And Goldberger is talking about how he's thinking about the success that Activision has been having. And he and Doherty are thinking about breaking away and creating their own company to make third-party games on the Intellivision, which nobody's doing at this point. Activision at this point is purely a VCS company because all the programmers came from Atari. So once again, Grubb is pretty much like, we're looking at doing something like that on the VCS. You're looking at doing something like that on the Intellivision. Let's all get together and form a single company, and you bring your Mattel people, and I'll bring our Atari people. We'll be the first third-party company that is providing quality software for both platforms, and that'll make us really stand out in the world. I don't know if it's been to this point. Is this literally the first third-party to do multi-platform? I imagine so. I mean, because for one thing, they're one of the first third parties. I mean, Imagic was, I believe, the third third-party company founded. Activision, of course, was first. Then Games by Apollo was founded in the late 1981. Actually, I'm not sure which one was founded first, but Games by Apollo released games before Imagic did, even if Imagic was technically founded second. It was third to release games. There weren't companies. Not even in the PC sphere? Well, we're only talking about console, remember. There are plenty of computer game companies that released games on multiple computer platforms. I mean, that goes all the way back to the beginning of the computer game industry. But they're not dealing in video games yet, even though companies like Sierra and Broderboom do eventually release a game or two on console platforms kind of late in the market. They're not doing it yet in 1981. That comes a little later. This is the first third-party publisher to do multi-console releases of games. Exactly. That's something Imagic did first, and that's because they had talent from both Atari and Mattel. Bill Grubb writes up a business plan. His wife basically stays up all night typing the thing out on a typewriter. Then he presents it to Kleiner Perkins, leading venture capital firm in the Valley. Kleiner Perkins is blown away by the idea. It's a good time to get in because Activision has proven this is successful, but this is before the market is saturated. Because Activision is successful, they were funded by Sutter Hill. Other venture firms in the Valley are now very interested in finding their own Activision that they can invest in and reap the profits. Kleiner Perkins is excited to come on board. They end up investing $1 million in the startup. Another VC firm, Merrill Packard, comes in with another half million. A lawyer that Bill Grubb is using to kind of get this whole venture together introduces Grubb to an Indian uh, angel investor who is also very interested and says, count me in too for another 500,000, another half million. They start the company on June 1st, 1981. For those who may not know, an angel investor 
is a person who just has a lot of money and goes, oh, I think you're really interesting. Here's some money to start your business. Yes. They're not really part of a company or a venture capital firm or whatever. They're just someone with a lot of money who just goes, you know, I like what you're doing. I'm going to help you out. Absolutely. The VCs and the angel investor between them, uh, they own about 40% of the company. Grubb and the other founders own 60% of the company, so they don't give up control to the venture capitalists, but they do get a decent amount of funding. And then they're incorporated on June 1st, uh, 1981, under that name Magic, which is obviously a combination of interactive and magic. Kind of writes itself. I don't know that there's any great origin to the term. You have to remember, uh, we talked about this with Activision. Activision got venture funding from Sutter Hill, but it was mostly a loan. Most of it wasn't investment because it was risky. No one had done it before. Even if it seemed like a good idea, even if it seemed like the market might be happy, there was no telling if Atari might be able to shut it all down. Atari might have been able to come out and sue everybody and stop Activision from happening. So it was a risk. Even the venture capitalists that funded Activision were kind of only tiptoeing around it. But now that Activision has proven itself, Imagic gets $2 million in venture funding from three different investors. This is clearly something different. This is clearly the investment community responding to this emerging video game industry and realizing that there is something here worth investing in. Even though we think more of Activision today, obviously because of its longevity, because of the fact that it's still around, sometimes now making headlines for all the wrong reasons, but still around, we think of that as the big company, and in a way it was, but Imagic was in other ways the real trailblazer in signaling that this was a market that was going to be huge, because they were met with more enthusiasm than Activision, even if they never reached the same heights as Activision. There are a few different founders of this company, the people we already mentioned, Bill Grubb, Dennis Koble, Jim Goldberger, Brian Doherty. They're all co-founders. Also co-founding are Rob Fulop from Atari, who had uh, created the VCS port of Missile Command, which was a big hit. He was considered one of the good up-and-coming young programmers at Atari. Very soon after, I'm not sure if they were founders, but if they weren't founders, they came very soon after. Bob Smith, who was another very competent programmer in the VCS group that was good friends with Rob. Rob Fulop joined because he was kind of upset about the compensation situation at Atari, just like the Activision programmers. The story that he likes to tell is that the year he created Missile Command, which sold millions of copies, some estimates put it at 2.5 million. We don't have solid figures on it, but it was definitely one of the giant hits of 1981. For doing that, his Christmas bonus was a free turkey from Safeway. I think it's safe to say that even the Jelly of the Month Club was a better Christmas bonus than what Rob Fulop got. I don't know. I think at least the turkey's edible, unlike the jelly of the month. <laughs> right. He was very nonplussed. And when he learned that Dennis Koble was leaving, he basically said, take me with you. <laughs> Please take me with you. Dennis was happy to take him because he was a talented programmer with a, a big success under his belt. Bob Smith also joins. And then also uh, Brad Stewart joins. I think Bob Smith was a co-founder. Brad Stewart, I think, joined... A few months later, Brad Stewart joined them in September of 1981. The company was founded in June. 
Brad Stewart was the person who programmed Asteroids on the VCS. Obviously, it was a coin-op game first. He was the one that programmed Asteroids on the VCS, and that was also a massive hit. It was the second biggest hit on the system from Atari in that period after Space Invaders. In 1981, the three big hits on the VCS from Atari were Space Invaders, which was still doing great business, even though that was its second year on the market, Missile Command, and Asteroids. Those were the three humongous hits. The creators of two of those games were now at this new company, Imagic. These are heavy hitters. These guys are pretty much almost as big a heavy hitters as the Activision people are. The Activision people were kind of the first wave of people hired into Atari. People like Bob Smith, Brad Stewart, and Rob Fulop were kind of the most talented of the second wave of programmers that came into Atari. There's that brain drain that we've talked about before in the context of Atari and the crash, where all of the best programmers are starting to leech out. Then on the other side of the coin, you have the Mattel side. You have Doherty coming over, another guy named Dave Duran comes over, and then of course Jim Goldberger comes over to be the head of marketing. So you have Bill Grubb at the top serving as the CEO. Goldberger from Mattel is going to be in charge of marketing. Grubb also brings over his really good friend from even back in his Black & Decker days that he brought to Atari with him, Mark Bradley, to be the head of sale. Bradley was the national accounts manager at Atari. He was the guy that was responsible for the Sears's and Pennies and Kmarts and Toys R Us's of the world at Atari. Another guy with fantastic retail connections that knew the industry in and out and had been good friends with Grubb for a very long time. Unlike Grubb, Bradley was still at Atari. Atari was, to put it mildly, rather pissed. <laughs> I think in some ways, the Imagic defection felt even more personal to the management at Atari. I can't say that for certain, but there's definitely a feel of more animosity in the way that Atari treated Imagic over the next year or so. I think it's because there was management talent poached as well as programming talent. When the Activision 4 left, they didn't quite realize yet how important talented programmers were, right? I mean, that's the whole reason that there was a compensation mismatch. Exactly. There's a compensation mismatch. Therefore, they go to where they can get that compensation that they want. Exactly. Then they don't properly address the issue. Another group disappears, along with management to coach, you know, I don't agree with the rest of this management here that's not properly handling things. I'm going to go where the grass is greener. Exactly. You know, the Activision guys leaving, it's like, well, crud. They were good programmers. That sucks. I mean, they were mad. They sued. They tried to stop it. But I don't think they were quite as personally embittered, Ray Kassar and the rest of upper Atari management. Then it happened again, and the head of the programming group is part of the departure. The national accounts manager is part of the departure. The former sales and marketing VP of the company is the guy that is kind of the ringleader of all of this. It just feels bad, I think. They can't stop them from putting product on the system. They've already gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with Activision, and that already didn't work. That was a much smaller thing to try and take out. Right. They can't sue them to prevent them from doing what they're doing. But they still try to do everything they can. They really go after a magic hard. They do sue a magic. 
they don't sue them for the all the patent stuff, the design patent stuff and the trade secret stuff that they sued Activision for necessarily. I think as much as anything, I mean, I haven't seen the case, but I think as much as anything, they sued them for poaching the people, saying that they were doing improper headhunting and that kind of thing. Of course, they were very careful about how they did it. They didn't, quote unquote, actively recruit people. Everyone left seemingly of their own accord, and then after they left the company, they joined a magic. They kept it all above board, but Atari went after them, I think, as much for the poaching of everybody as anything. They really tried hard to throw their weight around to prevent a magic from getting going. As Bill Grubb told me, not only did they sue Bill personally for stealing everybody, but they also leaned on retailers to try to get them not to carry a magic product, which is not legal. It's not legal to do that. This is the same kind of thing Nintendo was accused of doing, which we talked about at length in some of our Nintendo episodes during the late 80s, which got them sued for antitrust violations by Atari Corporation. You can't use your market position to coerce retail partners to not sell something else. That's monopoly practices. As Bill Grubb tells the story, of course, Bill Grubb knew the buyer at Sears really well because he had been at Atari, and Atari had a close relationship with Sears. When he was forming a magic, he went to the buyer at Sears and got a large commitment for a multi-million dollar order of product from Sears. Then a little while later, the buyer comes back and says, I'm sorry, we can't do this. We're not going to do the order. We're canceling the order. Obviously, this didn't smell right to Bill. He kind of talked to him, like, okay, look, level with me. What's going on here? Because they did have a good relationship, because they were friendly, the guy leveled with him and said, Atari is really putting pressure on us to not carry you guys. They're threatening retaliation if we carry your product. Of course, Grub's furious about this because it is illegal, as I was just saying. Right. But the problem is, is that even though it's illegal, that still doesn't mean that it doesn't have real tangible consequences for the retailer. It might be illegal. Yeah. But prove it, A. B. Get someone to go behind that and pay the financial money to prove that, go through the years of legal cases, then you just have a retailer just like, it's not worth me fighting this. Right. Bill Grubb, he wasn't going to back down. What he did is he threatened to file a lawsuit against Atari, a big, like, $100 million lawsuit, like a huge one, against Atari for monopolistic practices. He threatened to name specific individuals like Ray Kassar and like the buyer at Sears. When he talked to me about it, he said as unindicted co-conspirators, which can't be it because I mean you don't indict people in civil court. That's a criminal thing. But the point is, he was going to name names in the document. And even though he wasn't going to directly sue these people, he was basically going to leave open the threat that these individuals, including Ray Kassar and the Sears buyer, could be sued later down the road for engaging in these practices. As he tells the story, he and the legal guy went and hand-delivered that notice to the Sears buyer, stated their position, and then did the whole thing where they close up their briefcases and get ready to march out of the room. And then the Sears buyer's like, no, no, wait, wait, no, don't go. We'll do the order. You know, he fought fire with fire, and he was able to kind of nip that in the bud before it became a serious thing. Then it wasn't long after that when... Atari decided to drop its legal action against a magic as well as Grubb puts it. He thinks they got the message too. I mean, I've only got Grubb's side of all of this, but that's basically what went down. And so 
that cleared the way for a magic to get going. They were able to get Atari off their back and able to get their orders in all the retailers. By the end of the day, they were in about 97% of the retail chain in the United States. 97% of the retailers, I mean, that dealt in their kind of product, obviously. They were just completely in the channel because both Grubb and Bradley were really well-known by everybody. So that's kind of the story of getting a magic set up. What about getting product together? Just like Activision, of course, they had to reverse engineer the systems, two systems this time, both Atari and Mattel, before they could put any product on them. If they took Intellivisions or VCSs from their employers and used their technical know-how from working on those systems to create their own version of the system and then create games for the system, then they would be stealing trade secrets. They had to reverse engineer, clean room reverse engineering, which we've talked about before, where you have one guy that figures out what everything does, and then he tells the other guy, make something that does all of these things, and then you have this layer of plausible deniability if someone comes suing to say that you're copying their stuff. This was going to be a process. I mean, they had people that could do it. Certainly Dennis Koble and Rob Fulop and Bob Smith and Brad Stewart would have been more than capable of reverse engineering a VCS, but it takes time. They want to strike while the iron is hot because they know this market's coming and they don't want to be left out of it. I mean, they know that other companies are going to follow in their wake. Everyone's seen what Activision's done. It just so happens that there's a guy, and I forget his name, and he's buried somewhere deep in my research. I didn't have a chance to look it up again, so apologies for not using the name. But there happened to be a guy who took his own initiative to reverse engineer the VCS, an engineer, put together a book with everything about his reverse engineering, and then offer it to companies wanting to get into the market for something like $20,000 a pop or something like that. That's a guy who really knows his business and how to really market his skills. I have something that's going to help you succeed. Here it is. Nominal fee, $20,000. You don't have to reverse engineer. Here it is all laid out. It's already clean room cleaned. I just want $20,000 a pop. Exactly. And and it's probably a big part of why the industry oversaturated because, you know, all of those junky companies that came into the market, they didn't have the expertise to reverse engineer a VCS like Activision did, like Imagic could have if they'd wanted to go that route. They didn't have top flight engineers, many of whom had worked with the company that created the system. They were these little fly-by-nights that often were just hiring, literally hiring high school kids or college kids to put together some simple little crappy games and then put them on the market because retailers were buying up everything they could. A lot of these companies probably could not have existed if not for this guy offering them this reverse engineering manual. I think he boasted that something, if I'm remembering correctly, he boasted like something like 75% of the companies in the Atari VCS market were using his reverse engineering. Could have been exaggerating to blow himself up, but I don't think he was exaggerating by much. I mean, this is the reason why you could get all of these companies into the market. And Imagic was one of the first companies to use the product, because even though they could have reverse engineered the system on their own, they would have lost valuable time in the process. A more modern example of this would be Nintendo and how you had third parties that couldn't get around that lockup chip. So they said, yeah, just put our game in there and then put some other game, we don't care which one, into our <laughs> game, and then enjoy our game. They get the system reverse engineered uh, kind of before the end of the year, and they're ready to start rolling out their games. They preview their games at the January CES. 
in 1982 to big uh, acclaim and celebration. And then uh, they released their first games in March of that year. Now, did they release it for both Mattel and Atari? Did the guy actually have a manual for Mattel? No, they had to reverse engineer the Intellivision themselves. So it took a little longer for them to get that together. That they did reverse engineer in-house, and that was a process because uh, it was also a much more complicated system than the VCS. But they did get it reverse engineered. Doherty was very good at that kind of behind-the-scenes stuff, tools and everything else. So they did release on the Intellivision as well. We're really not going to focus on their Intellivision output only because they didn't have much success on Intellivision. And that's because Intellivision had a small share of the market. It's one thing to release on the VCS, which has something like 75% or more of the console market. It's another thing to release on Mattel. They even released one product on the Odyssey 2 eventually because they want to get on all the systems, but they really don't have a lot of success on anything that is not the VCS. But they also don't have the same animosity either. When it came to the Mattel side, I mean, I talked about how Atari was all vengeful and was suing and pressuring retailers. On the Mattel side, they had no problems. I mean, Bill Grubb, he was careful. He was careful with both companies. When he knew what was going on, I mean, he went and had a meeting with Ray, and he went and had a meeting with Josh Denham, the president of Mattel Electronics. In both cases, he told them, I'm starting this company. These people are going to be joining. I did not recruit them. They all quit on their own from your company and decided to join me in my new company, and we're going to make product for your system. We, of course, know how that turned out with the Atari people. The Mattel people, Josh Denham was fine with it. He basically said, okay, good luck. And I think it's a difference of market positioning. I think Josh Denham realized that with his system being so niche, they could only be helped by having more Intellivision product on the market to maybe spur more people to buy Intellivision systems. Mattel was fine with it, but it almost kind of wasn't worth the effort, and there actually ended up being a lot of dissension between the Mattel people and the Atari people at Imagic, because the Imagic people were not getting the same kind of royalties that the Atari people were getting, because the games they were making for that system were not as successful. I should back up, and uh, now that I've mentioned royalties, also mention, because I didn't before, that they very much followed a similar strategy to Activision in terms of giving both credit on the box and a royalty to everybody that was making games. They were, just like Activision, influenced in that by the music industry. Jim Levy at Activision, of course, had come out of the music industry. That's why he was influenced by that. Bill Grubb had never been in the music industry before, but we have to remember that Atari was owned by Warner Communications, and Warner Communications owned Warner Records, which was one of the big record labels. Bill Grubb went to a lot of corporate meetings, Warner corporate meetings. He wasn't just uh, hanging around Atari people, he was hanging around Warner people as well, and he kind of got a feel for how artists and how product were treated in the record industry by his exposure to the people at Warner Records, and he very much wanted to do the same thing as Activision and give everyone a royalty and give everyone recognition. It was a small royalty. They were also fully salaried, so it was royalties on top of salaries. Even a small royalty on top of a salary goes a long way. I mean, he treated them very fairly. And Magic makes a fantastic splash at the CES and at the launch of their first wave of games. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, They went all in on the packaging. This was Jim Goldberger. Goldberger is the head of marketing, was the guy that was also responsible for this. They wanted packaging that really stood out. 
they did a lot of focus groups with children to kind of see what was attractive. They did this one box that was silver and shiny. And as the art person tells the story, one of the kids actually tried to hide the box so that he could take it with him when he left. That's how attractive he was to the shiny box. They were like, that's the one. They were very expensive to print. They were very custom boxes. You had to do the printing in two layers because it was on this kind of shiny metallic stuff. So you had to lay down the white layer first, and then you would lay down color on top. You had to run it through the printer twice. It was expensive, but it was shiny. They had hired real professional artists to do this stuff, Michael Becker and Wilfredo Aguilar in particular. At the beginning, they also hired several other artists as time went on, including several women. At the beginning, kind of Michael Becker and Wilfredo Aguilar were brought in. Not only did they understand the drawing side of this, but they were really good model makers as well. For the box art, instead of doing drawings most of the time, like both Atari and Activision did, they did a lot of photography of these models that they built, really high-quality, interesting models. So it had three-dimensional, realistic kind of look to it, and then it had the shiny silver packaging. Really stood out. I mean, we'll put something in the show notes that highlights that, because there must be something out there that highlights this, and now Jeffrey has to go find it. Yay! <laughs> the packaging of a Magic Products is truly stunning. It is, in my opinion, the most stunning packaging of the time period. I mean, not of all time ever, but compared to Atari and Activision, it really did stand out. That was one part of it. The other part of it is that they really did amazing things with graphics, even in some ways more amazing than some of the things that Activision did with graphics. The reason for that is twofold. First of all, they were one of the first companies to have artists do the art in the games. The entire industry was moving that direction by early 1982. They may have even beat Atari to it. I don't know exactly when Atari started their art people also doing in-game graphics. They definitely did it before Activision did, because Activision was very much about the programmer does everything. I mean, yes, as we talked about, David Crane, because he was more artistically talented, did, for example, create the Mad Bomber and Kaboom for Larry Kaplan's game. But they weren't hiring artists. It was still the programmers doing the art. Even at Atari, where this was starting to come in by 1982, Magic was really early with this. Michael Becker and Alfredo Aguilar and then Nancy Seto and some of the other people that were hired in. They were not just doing the packaging, they were also doing the art in the game so that the programmers could just concentrate on making the games really good. I'm just looking at some of this packaging right now, because I did a couple quick searches. And this is really just interesting and fascinating, because mm -hmm. you got this very nice silver, usually at the top and the sides of these boxes. It has a magic there as a logo, and then you have whatever the game is, and then you have multicolored rainbow thing, which is a staple of pretty much any Atari 2600 game. Right. You look at the picture for the box art, you were saying that certain things were models, and I'm like, yeah, I can see that these rock formations look like actual things that you would have as part of clay modeling. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. I follow a few art YouTubers out there. I've seen how some of this stuff is sort of put together, and it's just fascinating. For example, like Cosmic Arc, which is one of their games. Yes. I'm looking at the box art for it. If I didn't know better, I'd say they just like took this from a 1980 sci-fi movie poster <laughs> and just slapped it on there. Right. I mean, it's that kind of quality. 
It looks like they took a model for the space station that's there. They probably have this painted starry background thing. Then they did that neon computer graphics thing they like to do for the bottom. And it's just really well done. And I think you're right when this really pops. If I'm like looking at a bunch of Atari game boxes and I'm trying to make my purchase decision based off of just that, which bad idea, but that's neither (laughs) here or there. When you're marketing to kids, that's what your main advertisement is. You don't have game reviewers out there. You don't really have all this other stuff. You look at that and they go, well, look, Cosmic Arc, I got a space station. I got this wonderful ship. It looks like a freaking movie. This game's going to be awesome. Exactly. Then I go look at Atari stuff and I go, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh, look at that box art. Here's the thing. I mean, you bring that up that, of course, the games back in that day, I mean, never quite lived up to the box art just because the limitations of the system. But comparatively to the Atari output and even the Activision output, the games themselves were also pretty graphically stunning for VCS games. Part of the reason for that is they had the professional artists doing it. The other part of that is they were the first ones on the VCS. I'm not saying they were the first ones ever in the history of anything. But they were the first ones on the VCS to translate art directly from an art program of some kind into a game. The way art was done back then on the VCS on consoles was that you would sketch out your art on graph paper, individual bits, you know. You'd plot it all out on graph paper, and then you would enter that in assembly language, in machine language, whatever, into the game. You didn't have drawn art in the game. You had drawn art on graph paper, and then you entered that in in assembly. The problem with that is it never quite turns out right. I mean, obviously, the Atari 2600 is a limited system. There's only so much you can do with it to begin with. But then when you take into account the fact that you're trying to translate a drawing on a piece of paper into code that will then be the art on the screen, that's just too many layers of abstraction. There's always what you might call errors. It's hard to get those pictures looking as great as they possibly can because your original picture is too far removed from your final product, if that makes any sense. Say, for example, I were to hand you a piece of graph paper and I say, draw me Mario. You'd probably be able to draw me Mario. But then if I take that same thing and say, okay, here's a program. I want you to tell the program the individual bits to turn Mario on and off in order to animate Mario. You'd probably find that pretty difficult and probably have some errors the first few times before you figure it out. Mm -hmm. contrast that with me just handing you an art program already on the computer and say, okay, draw me Mario on a 16 by 16 canvas. You could probably do that. And then I want you to take that and just load that image directly into the program or maybe the coder's pretty cool and you can just, oh yeah, I'll just look at that image and programmatically I can just say, oh yeah, we already know what these things are. We already know what it looks like. I can just have the program load it in some sort of way and encode it that way. I'm removing a layer of me trying to take an image I'm seeing with my human eyes and then translate that into code versus just have the computer look at an image that I've already made and just transfer that into code. Exactly. They didn't have the tools to do that before. They didn't have the tools at Atari. They didn't have the tools anywhere. 
But these were some really smart cookies. Again, these were some of the really talented people on both the VCS and the Atari 800 computer, which was in many ways an offshoot of the VCS. I mean, it's not the same system, obviously, but it's kind of in the same lineage. Rob Fulop created a sprite animation authoring tool for the Atari 800, where you could just draw right on the Atari 800 screen and create all your sprites. Then Bob Smith created a utility that could take that sprite data from your file on the Atari 800 and stick it straight into the assembly language code on your VCS program. So you're using the same kind of architecture and technology that is at least related somewhat to say, okay, I'm going to use the computer that's in the Atari family that has a lot of the same kind of Atari quirks to it to make my image file. And then I have a way that I can take those image files and I know what it's going to look like on a screen, translate that into assembly right on an Atari VCS, load that into a cartridge, and I will have as good as the Atari 2600 can do with interpreting that image. Right. It's it's one-to-one. You're no longer drawing hex codes on a piece of paper that you're then typing into assembly code and then hoping that that transition from hex code on paper to assembly code in your program creates something that is what you want it to look like. This makes for just night and day difference in graphics. It's still a VCS. It's not like you're going to suddenly get Nintendo Entertainment System quality graphics out of the thing. No, but you're going to get gradations that you don't normally get. Most Atari 2600 games, when we think about an Atari 2600 game, I have a blocky something, and it is a single color. Mm -hmm. Cosmic Arc, for example, I was just looking at a video of that. The main mothership thing, that is something I have not seen on a 2600 before. Yeah. You have gradations there. Mm -hmm. You have layers there with that ship. It is not just... Oh, it's an oval that is launching things. No, we have a multicolored, different grades of colored, mostly just interlaced and taking advantage of how, hey, if we do a line of black in between the colors that we're normally doing, the eye interprets that as a different color or a shade of color, especially on a tube television, which is fuzzy anyway. Exactly. By taking advantage of that fuzziness that is on tube televisions, you actually get a much better end result than you would even on, say, a modern screen. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's stunning. It really is. In the context of the times, it's stunning. I actually own a copy of Demon Attack, which is another magic game, and it's really, really pretty. I can actually play that on a television. And that looks Mm -hmm. better on the television than it does if I were to emulate it. Right. Uh, Just because of the way that the the CRTs work. And and the old games took advantage of that. You're always making your product for the medium that you're in. (laughs) That was the medium, CRT, not our sharp screens of today. Yes, the box art was impressive. And yes, the games were never going to quite live up to the box art, as is always the case. But the game you got still looked brilliant. And Demon Attack, which we do need to turn to next... That was one of the launch titles, one of the three launch titles that they launched in March. That was their first game, that level of sophistication. That game is very, very fascinating and really, really well done. You have your bottom 
land. It's it's very much in the vein of a Space Invaders kind of game where you're on the bottom of the screen, you're shooting up at things that are invading. In this case, we're calling them demons. They look like bats. It could be bat attack for all I care. We don't care. <laughs> they're coming down. They're moving around. They're actually animated. Mm-hmm. You have these wings or little appendages just sort of coming out and floating around and trying to attack you. You have your land, and that also has gradations again, where you have this lighter color going into a darker color to sort of like give this thing like, oh, you're on a planet or you're on a curved surface of some kind. Mm -hmm. You're fighting the monsters or the demons or the bats or whatever it is. And you have these beautiful bars of shooting that are going up and down between the enemy and you. And it looks really pretty. And I'm just looking at this as a direct capture on a YouTube video. If I were to compare this to my version on my old CRT that I run old games on, I'm sure I'm going to notice some things that are a little bit different, such as instead of the jagginess of my ship, that's going to look a little more smooth. Right. The demons, instead of being a bunch of different colored blocks together, they're going to look more cohesive as a full item. My landscape is going to have a more gentle gradation instead of just a light thing going into a dark thing. Exactly. Demon Attack, it was by Rob Fulop. The inspiration is obvious. I mean, you mentioned Space Invaders, but Galaxian was one of the big influences because, of course, that's got the multicolored sprites. It's got the individual ships diving and swooping at you and attacking you rather than the monolithic block of aliens and Space Invaders. And then Phoenix as well, which was another Space Invaders slash Galaxian ripoff that had more bird-like enemies. And the bird-like enemies of Demon Attack are clearly inspired by what's going on in Phoenix, as are kind of the way the game plays is as well. So in terms of play mechanics, it's not doing much new. It's just kind of remixing Galaxian and Phoenix. What makes it incredible is that Fulop's goal with the game, as he said himself, was that he wanted this to be an everything-in-the-kitchen-sink game where there was just a lot of variety and a lot of different things to see. He created seven different types of monsters. But then, with the help of the artist Michael Becker, they colored them in eight different ways. There were eight different color patterns per creature. So there were 56 monster variations in the game. Then he created wave after wave after wave of these things in different combinations. There are actually 84 waves of ships that you can experience, and each one is a little bit different because of the mixing and matching of the seven different types of monsters in their eight different color scheme. Not just that, but when you blow up the larger monsters, they can become two smaller monsters, Yep. and then their attack pattern will change, so you have to be careful about how many of the big ones you take out at a time. Once you take out a single one in a starting wave, another one will magically come in, so you got to sort of pace yourself as you're attacking these things, because if you don't, it's easy to have a whole bunch of little things on the screen that are making your life miserable, and then you're having to run around and handle that instead of having to deal with three large things. Right. So there's just so much variation. It's a really incredible game, and it is one of the big hits of 1982. It's not the biggest hit of 1982. We don't have firm magic figures, sadly, but it probably sold somewhere in the neighborhood of 2 million at least, a little more than 2 million. It was almost certainly their biggest hit. 
you know, it was released in March 1982, and, and it was a smash. Then later in the year, around July, Dennis Koble's not first game, but kind of first major game for the company takes a bow. Another game that I'm uh, pretty sure you have, and that's Atlantis. I'm about 90% sure I have that somewhere. Yes, I'm almost positive I played it on your VCS. Again, it was a remix. In a way, it's a remix of Missile Command, a game that Koble was a big fan of. You're defending a planet from death from above, just like in Missile Command. And just like in Missile Command, you have multiple gun batteries. You actually have three different batteries, one on either side of the screen and one in the middle of the screen. Depending on which way you flick your joystick determines which one of the bases that is going to be firing at the enemies that are coming around. So you have to defend cities on the surface using these three batteries. It doesn't play like Missile Command in the sense that Missile Command has the long contrails behind them and you're trying to line up your shot to explode multiple of them at once, and it's all about playing the angles and playing the interception. It plays faster, more like a Demon Attack or a Galaxian or something like that, but with a similar defensive function to what you found in Missile Command. You could play a two-player as well. You could split up the batteries uh, between two players on two different joysticks, so you could even do it as a two-player game as well. Again, the gameplay, maybe not that much of an innovation. I mean, they're not being like Activision doing things like Pitfall, which are just redefining gameplay on the system. They're returning to some of the old tried-and-true arcade classics that they like, but the presentation is just stunning. Again, you have these multicolored ships and multicolored cities and whatnot in Atlantis that are just beautiful to look at. Today, it looks like a pixelated mess, but look at all the early Atari product. You have shape of some kind, building, single-colored, monocolor. That's the biggest thing, single-color. Right. Think of everyone's most hated game, E.T. E.T. is just green. Whips are brown. Hole is weird. <laughs> then you compare that with any a magic game and you go multicolored sprites. It's much more visually expressive. It shows the true capabilities of the Atari 2600 being properly utilized. Mm-hmm. The only thing I can think of that would be analogous to that would be the Super Nintendo and how the early releases compared to the later releases. You want an example of that? Look at F-Zero, a wonderful, famous, popular game, but you look at how F-Zero looks compared to a game late in the life. And the one I love to use for that is Secret of Evermore, which I think is just such a beautiful, beautiful game on the Super Nintendo that is just wonderful. Another one that would be a very good example would be Donkey Kong Country. F-Zero and Donkey Kong Country. Of course. I mean, that's night and day. This is that kind of level of change with the 2600, where you have early game systems put out by Atari, and then you have a magic. Sure, and, and the Donkey Kong Country comparison is even in some ways more apropos, because what made Donkey Kong Country so amazing is that they rendered polygons on a powerful silicon graphics workstation, and then had a way to translate those polygons into Super NES graphics. In a very similar way, people at Imagic created a utility that allowed them to make beautiful graphics, beautiful for the time, mind you, on the more powerful Atari 800, 
and then translate those graphics down into the Atari 2600. Such a beautiful, beautiful way of making games and being popular with these great hits out of the gate. It's hard to imagine that they died and only had a two-year lifespan. Well, you know, they shot up like a rocket. I mean, they really did. Demon Attack sold 2 million-plus copies. Atlantis most likely sold 2 million-plus copies. Those were their two most popular games by far, but some of their other games did okay as well. They did a massive $10 million advertising campaign for Christmas 1982. They got a really, really fine, really well-known advertising agency by the name of Key Donna Perlstein to run that campaign based around the slogan created by the experts for the experts. They were both playing up the capabilities of their programmers and the amazing sophistication of their games, while also kind of giving this idea that we are making great games for the hardcore game player. They have a very big marketing campaign. They shoot up by the end of their first like year of existence or something. I don't know exactly where the numbers come from. They were at about 50 million. And by the end of their first Christmas, which is a little more than a year, but less than a year after they released their games, they had done something like 75 million in sales. They were lauded in some circles as the fastest growing company in American history in terms of going from zero to like 75 million in such a short period of time. I mean, there are different ways you can measure that, but they were measured by some metrics as the fastest growing company that America had ever seen, a record that was surpassed very quickly after that. It's not like they held it for 50 years, but they shot up like a rocket. Because they shot up like a rocket, they were poised in 1982 to become the very first video game company to go public. Now, there were public companies doing video games, but there had never been a company founded as a video game company specifically that had ever gone public before. Obviously, Bally was a public company, but they went public in 1969 when they were a slot machine and pinball company, not a video game company. Atari was owned by Warner. Warner was a public company, but they bought Atari. Atari didn't go public. Sega went public in the United States as Sega Inc., but only as a subsidiary of Gulf and Western. Gulf and Western just took a shell company that they owned, as we talked about in our Sega episode, and said, okay, Sega Enterprises Limited, now you're a subsidiary of this shell company, so you've gone public. It's not the same thing as what a Magic did. A Magic was poised to become the very first video game company, company founded solely to make video games, that was going to have an IPO. They got Hammerfield and Quist and Merrill Lynch. They had some of the best underwriters in the retail sector and in the technology sector. Everyone was going to be millionaires, multimillionaires. They were going to do an offering of 2.7 million shares, and it was expected that those shares were going to go somewhere between $15 and $17 a share. A fantastic price. According to their calculations, Rob Fulop and Bob Smith were going to make $6.8 million in the IPO. Dennis Coble was going to make $11.4 million in the IPO. Everyone was going to be rich, and the company's future would be assured. Just as soon as the company had its IPO on December the 10th, 1982. Yay! I think, Jeffrey, that you and I have talked before about a little event that happened on December the 8th, 1982. The world was a good and happy place. Because on December the 8th, 1982, 
Warner Communications announced that their year-over-year growth would only be around 15% instead of 50% because of mounting losses at Atari. So pretty much, Atari got their revenge by saying, we're going to go belly up and we're taking you all with us. You know, it's, it's interesting that you put it that way because several people that have been interviewed from Imagic have said that they're positive that Warner did the announcement when they did the announcement solely to screw up the Imagic IPO. Because Warner did give this announcement early. Warner was on a calendar year quarter system, by which I mean their first quarter was January to March, second quarter, April to June, etc., and fourth quarter was October to December. Their quarter didn't actually end until December 31st. They would announce their official earnings for 1982 after the new year, once they'd had a chance to figure out what was going on. Have to make sure you count those Christmas numbers. Right, so... That's part of the reason why the Imagic people were so embittered and thought that they did an early announcement solely to tank them. And the other thing that added to their thought about this is that Atari had recently sued them again in the fall over Demon Attack because Atari had the console rights to the game Phoenix. Demon Attack did have some superficial similarities to Phoenix. It was not a clone. It was not a ripoff, but it had some superficial similarities. Interestingly, they didn't sue when it was released on the 2600 in March. They only sued when it was released on the Intellivision later in the year. They almost certainly did that lawsuit solely to try to mess up the IPO, because, of course, they were already in the IPO process in the fall of 1982. It is almost certainly true that Atari did that suit over Demon Attack solely to mess with the magic in their IPO. The case settled very quickly. It never went anywhere. It was just kind of meant to be inconvenient because nobody likes to see a company involved in litigation when they're getting ready to go public. I don't think it's in any way true that the December 8th announcement was an attempt to torpedo the Imagic IPO. I've talked to a lot of people at Atari, and what basically happened is Atari, as we talked about in our Atari episodes, I won't belabor the point. We just need to contextualize it for this whole Imagic thing. Atari had been telling everybody month after month after month that they were going to have great profits, and Warner was telling everybody month after month after month that they were going to have another record quarter. When they finally realized just after Thanksgiving that none of that was true anymore, I think they realized that they had to break the news as soon as they were aware of it, because otherwise they could get in very real trouble with the SEC and with shareholders that could accuse them of deliberately lying to pump up the stock price. If they had waited to make that announcement with their regular announcement after the first of the year in their annual report, there would have been hell to pay. Even as it was, they were still sued by their shareholders and investigated by the SEC for what happened. But it would have been even worse if they had sat on that news. So I think they announced the news on December 8th because that was the earliest they were able to announce the news and they needed to do it to try to stave off their own legal troubles. But the fallout was the Imagic IPO was canceled. Nobody wanted to buy video game stocks two days after Warner made their cataclysmic announcement that sent their share price plummeting. That was the end of the Imagic IPO. It never happened. As we talked about on our Activision episodes, Activision did manage to go public in March 1983 once the smoke had cleared a little bit. But Imagic was not able to go public. Two days. They were derailed 
literally two days before they were going to go public. Let's say that they did go public. Let's say the numbers were reversed and they went public on the 8th and Warner announced on the 10th. They go public. They get their big thing. Everyone's happy. Champagne and everything. Then two days later, the announcement comes out. Anything video game related is going to go down in price. All of that stock that they just got a bunch of money for, you were saying like $15, $16, $17 a share. That's probably after they look at Warner and they go, well, Warner, who has Atari, is going belly up. That's bad. Nothing else is going to survive. The price of that stock on a Magic is going to go from 15 down to 5 In the moment, yes, but only in the moment. It saved Activision. Activision did go public, and that's the reason why Activision did not fall in the crash. So yeah, if they had gone public December 8th, like you said, and Atari announced December 10th, of course, a couple of days after the IPO, the stock would have fallen, but it would have climbed back up a little bit. If they had gone public in September, they would have been gone public well enough in advance that they would have already had a chance to build up some reserves before they got hit by the stock crash. So, I mean, going public may well have saved a magic. In all seriousness, it saved Activision. Activision would not have existed anymore if it hadn't gone public in March 1983, and everyone knew how bad the video game industry was in March 1983. They were able to go public anyway. That moment, that time, that was just the worst possible luck. It derailed the whole thing, and after it was derailed, they couldn't get it started again. What's a magic to do now? There's not a whole lot they can do. It starts the decline, a decline that they never pull out of. First, they cut the company way back. Bill Grubb is not shy about starting to cut staff, cut costs, to try to keep things under control. They also accelerate plans to try to diversify into home computers. Though they don't necessarily do a very good job of backing the right horses, they look at kind of the big stable companies that are coming in, like Texas Instruments, and back companies like TI more than they back companies like Commodore. That's the wrong direction to go because, of course, TI gets handed its lunch by Commodore in the home computer price wars and ends up pulling out of the business. There's kind of a palace revolt. Brian Doherty, who's been kind of getting more and more unhappy about his place in the company because the Intellivision stuff isn't quite pulling the same wage as the Atari stuff, starts plotting to form his own company and Bill Grubb ends up firing him. Doherty does found a company and goes on to have a nice life. I mean, there's nothing you know, shameful or underhanded about that. It's just that Grubb felt he had to fire him because he was starting to take those steps while he was still at a magic. A lot of people leave. The venture capitalists basically decide that Bill Grubb is not the man for the job. Bill Grubb was surprised by what happened. He was, and he admits it, but he wasn't the only one that was surprised. Ray Kassar was surprised. Josh Denham was surprised. James Levy were surprised. They were all surprised. But Bill Grubb didn't see it coming. He wasn't alone in that, but it's true he didn't see it coming, and the board lost confidence. They knew he was a great marketer, but they didn't think that a great marketer is what they needed to save them now under these circumstances. So in October 1983, the board tells Bill Grubb that they're going in a different direction. They fire him. I'm sure in the papers it said he resigned. It's what the papers always say, but they fired him. In his place, they invited probably the most unimaginable person that they possibly could, Bruce Davis. You remember the name Bruce Davis, don't you, Jeffrey? The name sounds familiar. I'm just trying to figure out which one of our boogeymen he is. The Activision one. Oh. 
But this is before Activision for him. <laughs> Activision before Activision. Well, no, Bruce Davis before Activision. But he could take a magic and magically turn it into Activision before Activision. No, I see. Bruce Davis had a background in accounting and a background in intellectual property. He was a lawyer, but he was a lawyer with also an accounting background. He was at the IP law firm that Imagic was using when they were setting up the company, because, of course, they needed a lot of IP advice because they were going in and reverse engineering and putting stuff out on other people's systems. They had to make sure that they were covered in terms of how they were getting into this market. Grubb and the board at Imagic got to know Bruce Davis because he was one of the lawyers at the company. Then in the middle of 1982, he was asked to come in as the in-house counsel. They didn't have an in-house counsel at that point, but they needed one because they were about to do a public offering. And as Bruce Davis tells the story himself, you know, he was 29 at the time, pretty young guy, very young attorney. He had no idea that's why they were bringing him into the company. And as he says, you know, he came into the company and a day or two later, Bill Grubb comes into his office and says, what do you know about doing an IPO? Bruce Davis said, you never done IPOs. No, I've never done one. All I know is what I've read about here and there. Bill Grubb said back, well, you're about to know because you're going to do one. Davis was brought in to do the IPO, put the IPO together in conjunction with everybody else. I think there were two things that really enamored the board about him. One of those things was that he did have an accounting background. It was very clear that getting the finances under control, getting the inventory situation under control, getting all of these disasters under control was going to be a big part of allowing a match to continue. Having someone with a solid accounting background, a solid finance background, I think is something that appealed to the board. The other thing is, is that Bruce Davis was just about the only person in the company that had kind of seen the disaster coming and pointed it out. This isn't because he was some genius or savant. I'm not trying to say that at all. Even Bruce Davis himself, as much as a lot of people malign him that were at Activision and Infocom, he wouldn't say that he was any great genius in figuring that out either. While all the high-level executives, while Bill Grubb and all of the others were busy, really busy with the IPO, which was also part of the reason why they had kind of taken their eye off the ball of what was going on in the market, Bruce Davis had been asked to put together a business plan for the company to execute when it did go public. Because Bruce Davis was focusing on making this business plan, he was actually analyzing the market very carefully, much more carefully than anyone else in the company was. Because of that, he had a better idea of what was coming, and I think the board was impressed by that. As I said, it didn't take any great genius to come to the conclusion he did. Nonetheless, it impressed the board. So I think for these two reasons, they decided to make Bruce Davis president of the company at the end of 1983. The common narrative that everybody at Activision and everybody at Infocom and Bill Grubb, too, who felt very betrayed by the situation, is that Bruce Davis, this young guy who knows nothing and ran a magic into the ground, then went over to Activision and ran Activision into the ground. We've already talked about Bruce Davis's tenure at Activision. We did a whole episode on Mediagenic. We went into the good and the bad of Bruce Davis, because there was both. I tried to rehabilitate him a little bit, but I didn't try to rehabilitate him from a monster into a genius, just from a monster into an rather ordinary executive who had some good ideas and some bad ideas and kind of muddled along. There's one thing that I thought about when you brought up that he was doing the first 
IPO for him. Right. Makes me wonder if he was experienced at doing IPOs, if he would have been able to get that done sooner to get before that December 8th doom date. That's an interesting point. I honestly don't know. I mean, IPOs take a long time to put together, so maybe not. But it's, it's an interesting question to ask. It really is. <laughs> it's it's not an unfair question. It's an interesting speculation at the very least. Absolutely. We've already talked about his Activision side and tried to rehabilitate him a little bit there. And it's it's not really fair to say that he ran a magic into the ground either. It's already torpedoing at this point. And magic was doomed from the moment it had to cancel its IPO. They had a massive inventory problem. So what happened is just like everybody else, Imagic shipped a lot of product into the channel in 1982. That was the year that retailers were ordering everything they could get their hands on and when companies were producing everything they could get their hands on. They got tens of millions of dollars of stock on shelves for 1982, for the 1982 holiday season. And they only sold through about half of it. But it's worse than that because, uh, and this is something we hadn't really talked about before, but it's an interesting thing that Bruce Davis brought up in relation to the crash. Because everyone and their brother wanted to get into the industry, there was also a major component shortage. There was a major ROM shortage. Not only were all of these companies buying up too much inventory and shipping too much product in 1982, they were already in the process of overbuying on components for 1983 because there was a shortage and you had to get everything you could now before it was gone. They had tens of millions of dollars in unsold inventory sitting on shelves at retail, and then they had tens of millions of dollars of components sitting in warehouses that suddenly had no place to go. They couldn't turn those into games and sell them through. It was a snowball effect across the entire product chain. From sourcing components all the way down to selling at retail. When supply chains break down, it's not good and everything tends to go belly up for a while until it sorts itself out. That's right. So, I mean, Bruce Davis was in an impossible situation because they were just so backed up on components. They tried to navigate the retail channels as well as they could. They had to offer price protection. You know, a lot of popular histories talk about stock being returned, but stock really wasn't returned to the companies. Now, orders were canceled. There is stock at Atari, at Magic, at Activision, every place else that was created in anticipation of being shipped to retailers that then did not get shipped because the retailers canceled their orders. So there was surplus stock, but stock wasn't returned. What happened is that these companies had to offer price protection to the retailers. And we've talked about this a little bit. Your games are sitting on their shelves. Now you're trying to sell them your newest games, and you have to sell them your newest games. You already bought the components when the market was big. You have to do something with those components. So you're going to make your next round of games. So you go to Toys R Us, and you say, I've got this new game. It's really great. You should buy it. Toys R Us is like, oh, no, you don't. That's what you said about your last game, and it's still sitting on the shelf here. So I'm going to need you to give this stuff to me at a much lower price to compensate for the fact that I still have your high-priced games sitting on my shelf. I have to make my profit somewhere, and it's your game that didn't sell, so you're the one that's going to eat it. They had to offer price protection to the retailers to take their new product. 
you have to sell through your new products. You have to get something back for those components, but you can't make your money back on selling it. You're writing off inventory, essentially. Or you're getting pennies on the dollar. Right. You can't get ahead. As Bruce Davis himself says, Toys R Us was a believer in video games, and they did their best to help them, actually. Toys R Us kept paying them consistently throughout this period, throughout 83, 84. Toys R Us kept giving them payments for stock, but not as much as they were supposed to give, not as much as they really owed. That was fine. I mean, they had no leverage. They couldn't make Toys R Us pay because they could demand all their bills from Toys R Us. I mean, they had a contract. They could sue. The moment they did that, Toys R Us would be like, okay, fine, we'll pay you the full price of your inventory, and by the way, don't bother calling us ever again, because we're not going to take your next product. Toys R Us did try to help them out by paying them consistently throughout the fallow period, but never as much as the stock was worth, because Toys R Us had to protect themselves too. Jim Wims, uh, who would later go on to a very distinguished career at Worlds of Wonder and Sony in sales, was a young guy starting out at a magic his first job in the industry, he was basically told by the VCs, what we want you to do is get this inventory gone. We don't care how you do it. Just get it out of here. And then we're going to give you six months severance and you can just take a six month vacation someplace before your next job. You will never get a deal like this ever again in your life from anybody. I mean, any place you work. So you might as well do it. And Jim Wims was like, yeah, I might as well do that. Wims himself told me about this because I've interviewed him as well. He spent a lot of 1983 before leaving the company just selling inventory to whoever he could, including discount buyers, the guys that come in and just buy huge lots of stuff at really, really cheap prices and then put it in the cheapest possible venues, the dollar stores of the world, just to get it out. So they didn't make much money on it, but they were able to clear out the inventory. More or less, he helped liquidate the company. Yeah, they liquidated product. Now, they weren't liquidating the company yet. They were just liquidating that VCS product and that Intellivision product. I guess the Odyssey 2 product as well that they barely kind of did. They weren't liquidating the company yet. The company was still trying to survive. They cut it to the bone. Bill Grubb started the layoffs. Bruce Davis continued the layoffs. They cut it to the bone. They tried to find a buyer. Bill Grubb, before he left, actually had talks with Arnold Greenberg of Coleco about buying the company. Coleco was having its own disaster with the Atom computer and all sorts of stuff that we've talked about before. So Greenberg, even though he was impressed with the magic, he felt they couldn't do it. And I'm sure he was right. I mean, that was the right decision for Greenberg to make on that one. They tried to offer it to Coleco. That didn't work. They tried to pivot harder into the computer industry. They almost got a deal that may have kept them going. I talked about how they had backed Texas Instrument and the TI-99 computer. When TI decided to get out of the home computer business and write off all the inventory, they had to hand off the support, the continuing support and marketing of the remaining Texas Instrument product to another company because they were writing off the business entirely. If you write off the business as a massive tax loss, you can't then continue in the business in any way, shape, or form. That meant that TI was going to cease servicing TI computers altogether, cease servicing that market. Any additional backstock that they still had, they wouldn't be able to sell. So they were going to go to a third-party company and give that all to them to let them keep the business going. They approached Imagic to do it because Imagic was one of the few companies that had stood by them in the market during the period of time when they were still struggling against Commodore. Bruce Davis got so close to negotiating a deal with them that the last minute TI decided that Imagic was too wounded, too unstable, too small to entrust with that, and they backed out of the deal. Then IBM came calling. 
and this seemed like another thing that could save them. IBM had this new computer they were making, geared towards the home market, the PC Junior. They wanted a Magic to be one of the companies providing launch titles, games, when the PC Junior released. So this excited Bruce Davis and excited the board again because, oh my gosh, IBM, the big time. This is going to save the company. Unfortunately, as I said, this was for the PC Junior. The PC Junior is like a regular PC you enjoy today, except dumbed down. And that's putting it nicely. Not fully compatible with a regular PC and with one of the worst keyboards ever known to mankind. It's full of sadness. Do not get one. Shun it for the horror that it is. It was a massive flop, so Magic did create several games for that system to be available at launch in 84. But, of course, that never went anywhere. Pretty much it's the Texas Instrument computer thing again. Exactly. I mean, they did release product on Atari computers and Commodore computers and all of that, but TI and IBM were the two horses that they really backed because those were the two big names. Not in PCs, obviously, because they failed, but the big names in computing generally. (laughs) They flopped. Magic at this point was just kind of going along hand to mouth. I mean, they did get rid of most of their inventory. By laying off most of the people, they were able to keep going. All the founders are long gone by this point. I mean, Fulop's gone, Koval's gone. They, they've all gone to greener pastures already. But, you know, the company is existing, but it's not thriving. Nobody's getting bonuses. Nobody's getting raises. They're not bringing in much new talent. They're just kind of going along with a skeleton crew, releasing a little thing here, a little thing there, just basically keeping the lights on. In early 1985, they come to a crossroads, Bruce Davis and the board. Basically, at this point, it's clear they cannot keep doing what they're doing. Because, as I said, it's just barely enough to keep the lights on, and and nobody's going to stick around for that. There's no growth in that. Either the VCs, who, you know, still control the company, a vast portion of the company, still have board seats, you know, still very influential. Either the VCs are going to have to put more money in, in one last effort to regain some lost glory in the computer market. Or they're going to have to just say, we tried, it didn't work out, sorry everybody, let's go home. They decided, quite rightly, that the computer game market just couldn't sustain who they were. This company that had made all of these incredible games on the Atari VCS that sold millions of units wanted to at least attempt to do the same quality of games in the PC market, but couldn't do it in a market where they were selling tens of thousands of units instead of millions of units. So they looked at the market and they decided, okay, we really can't do anything more here. And they decided to shut it down. Right before Nintendo brings back the console market in the United States. You know, they just keep getting knocked down by a few days. Right. I mean, now, just because Nintendo was coming along and would launch the limited market in 85 and and really launch in 86... Just because there was another video game player in town doesn't mean that if a Magic had toughed it out another year, that they would have automatically been revived. Just because they may have had a chance to do something on the NES doesn't mean that they would have actually been successful. A lot of the talent was gone. They may not have had any interesting games. They might have been buried in the market by more well-financed Japanese companies. There's nothing that says that if they had held on another year the end result wouldn't have been the same, and they just would have collapsed a year later. I mean, that's still very possible. 
But it is also true that they, just like Coleco, which finally abandoned the market in 85, they got out right before there was maybe one last chance to try to make a big go of it. But they didn't know that was coming. I mean, they couldn't have known that was coming. That's not a criticism. It's just a fluke of history. Yeah, exactly. So in 85, they kind of wrap it up. And then I think in 86, it might have been 87, but I think it was in 86, Activision actually purchases the entire Magic catalog. I believe that's still where the rights to those games like Atlantis and Cosmic Ark and Demon Attack are today are probably still with Activision because that intellectual property was sold off to Activision. And Magic ceased to exist. I mean, that's, that's the end of its story. The games lived on. I think Activision did some re-releases of some of the games. The story of the company was over. I mean, it was done at that point. As we said at the top of the episode, it only lasted for such a short period of time, but its rise was meteoric. Its games were impressive compared to their contemporaries, and it's a company that's shown real bright, even if it only shown for a brief period, which is why it's worthy of an episode of our uh, humble little podcast here today. I do find the company very interesting in that they had a lot of great potential. They put out some very fascinating and good games, but it just seems that they just had really bad luck with timing. Yeah, they they had some bad timing. That seemed to be the biggest thing with them. Bad timing selecting an IPO, bad timing selecting the correct PC people to back, bad timing all around. Yep. Well, goodbye, Magic. Your magic will still live on through your games and fond memories. That leaves us with something that we talk about in our following episode. Oh, you mean we have to do another one of these? Forever and ever. Well, I think we should go back and do another old school company, uh, but this time an arcade company, a coin-op company. A company that goes back way further, way, way further than the beginning of the video game industry. A little company called Gottlieb. They were only very briefly in the video game industry. They were only very briefly relevant in the video game industry. But in the larger coin-op industry, they were one of the kings of the field. And so we'll go into a little bit of that earlier history, even though non-video coin-op is not our focus, and then kind of examine that brief period where they kind of caught an interesting uh, wave in the golden age of coin-operated video games. And then, just like a magic, quite frankly realized that they had ridden that wave too late and got dashed against the rocks and killed. No! So we're just going on a uh, spree of poor lost companies here. I guess, I guess, though Gottlieb did last many, many decades longer than than a magic lasted. But uh, yeah, in the end, got killed in part by video just like a magic did. But in a very different way, which is what we'll examine in our next episode. All right, we will go to the arcades with Gottlieb next time on They Create Worlds, the people and companies who shape the video game industry, volume 149. <laughs> Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have linked to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. 
Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworld. Please give us a review on your favorite podcasting service. Getting the word out helps us grow. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Volum Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 